It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Hello, my name is Salima Nawaz, and I'm speaking to you from my study in Montreal. I've recorded three short excerpts from my novel, Songs for the End of the World. This novel came out last year in 2020 and had the odd fortune of being a novel set in 2020 that happened to be about a novel coronavirus pandemic. Um, It had been written long time before the current pandemic. I'd been working on it for about seven years, but nevertheless, it was an odd experience seeing just how many parallels there turned out to be between the novel and the events that we've all lived through. In another sort of eerie coincidence, one of the characters in the book is a writer named Owen Grant, who has written a popular novel about a pandemic that almost seems, within the world of my novel, as if it's coming true. In the first election you'll hear, he's visiting a video game studio that is trying to create a game out of his book. At the studio, he is greeted by Josh and Ryan, both white men in their 30s wearing glasses and superhero t-shirts. Josh has a mass of curly hair and Ryan sports a beard. Details Owen absorbs for the purpose of distinguishing them. Great to meet you finally, says Josh, pushing his curls behind an ear. Love the book, adds Ryan. His beard is long and wizardish. Nice to meet you guys, says Owen. He has been dubious about the project ever since the studio bought the rights. His involvement was stipulated, but Andy warned him that the process might be painful. Just remember it's a very different medium, his agent Andy had said. There's got to be some give and take. Owen tries to keep the spirit of exchange in mind as he follows Josh and Ryan down a hallway into a galley kitchen. A girl with electric blue hair offers him a soy meal replacement drink from a fridge that appears to be exclusively stocked with identical glass bottles filled with chalky looking liquid. Uh, No thanks, says Owen. She shrugs and takes one for herself. He follows the young men into a bright decorated and aggressively casual meeting room where they settle around a table. Owen chooses an orange leather armchair that seems less saggy than the others, but finds himself sinking down further than expected. The blue-haired young woman is with them, though Owen has somehow missed both seeing her come in and getting her name. So, as you know, we've been in pre-production for a while now, says Josh of the curly hair. We've got our own ideas we're excited to show you and some concept art, but right now the question we're wrestling with is how the player actually wins. Wins? By staying alive, I guess, says Owen. When nobody responds, he adds, as in, not dying? Ryan shakes his head, not specific enough. Everybody dies, says the blue-haired girl, eventually. I think it could be enough, says Josh, considering, but we need to complicate it. You're basing this on the novel, right? Owen asks. The plot is already laid out there. Sure, says Josh, but we can't just follow the book beat by beat. It has to be interactive. It's about agency, says Ryan. He spreads his hands out on the table and Owen can see he's wearing a series of dark metal rings shaped like dragons. People want the illusion of control. They want to feel like their choices are meaningful, even if they're not. So like life then, says Owen. Exactly, says Ryan, as though Owen has not made a little joke or possibly the joke is so little that no one deems it worth acknowledging. In real life, the best way to survive a plague is just to be alone, Owen offers. Just go off somewhere away from other people. 
But that doesn't make for a very interesting game, says Ryan. Well, that's what David does, says Owen, in the book. That's not all he does, says the girl, tapping a pen on her notepad. Josh stands up and moves over to a wall-mounted whiteboard. Okay, so part of the goal is to be the last man standing. With a dry erase marker, he writes, last man standing. And maybe something else, maybe something harder? The girl tries again. Well, the kids are the ones getting sick. That's the heart of the book, isn't it? The player character should have to save as many kids as possible. That's the challenge. Josh points the uncapped marker at Owen. Tell us more about the player character, the main character, I mean, uh, David. He's a science teacher, says Owen, a microbiologist by training. He's overqualified for his job, but a lifelong learner. And he has an interest in pandemics, kind of as a hobby. So he's able to guess what's happening a little sooner than everyone else. So he puts it together himself, says Josh. Not all by himself, but he has the opportunity of seeing things unfold up close. And like I said, he takes an interest. He tracks the warnings coming out of the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control. Owen takes out his phone. They post health advisories and alerts of new infection clusters worldwide. He pulls up the CDC page and starts reading out the titles of some of the bulletins. Salmonella outbreak in Utah, pneumonic plague in Madagascar, mystery virus being investigated in New York City. New York, look out, says Ryan, it's starting. Josh laughs. Huh, says Owen. The conversation continues around him while Owen clicks on the advisory posted just that morning. August 10th, 2020, 28 reported cases, including four deaths attributed to a suspected coronavirus in Manhattan, unidentified respiratory virus with possible airborne infection, foodborne pathogen ruled out, all surviving patients hospitalized with one third in critical condition. You still with us, Owen? Yes, says Owen, putting down his phone. I think, begins the girl clearing her throat. So I'm thinking we should have an ongoing tally, says Josh, of how many kids he saves. That'll be part of it. Right, great, says Owen, that makes sense. The girl with blue hair gets up with a glare of loathing and leaves the room. Josh and Ryan exchange a puzzled glance. The second excerpt I'm gonna read is a little further along in the book from Emma's perspective. Emma and her husband, Stu, are members of a band. Emma, September, 2020. Emma slipped her hand into her pocket and pulled out her phone. Reflexively, she snapped a photo of the half-deserted terminal and sent it to her sister. Surprising upside of terrifying worldwide epidemic. No epic lineups to get through airport security. She and Stu and their bandmates were waiting in a newly designated pre-screening area as six ceiling-mounted monitors tuned to the same news network flashed synchronously high above. In a couple of hours, they would be flying into Canada by special dispensation to headline an Aramis benefit concert in Vancouver. It was only a few weeks ago that, Aram that Emma was lying on the couch in front of the television saying, Aramis sounds like something nice to catch, much less disgusting than swine flu. Stu was on the rug playing with an old theremin he'd found at the Salvation Army and repaired with the help of how-to guides on the internet. They should name all the flu variants the way they do hurricanes. His hand cut through the air above the theremin and a hypnotic sound thrummed across the room. They're like the chorus of a song, the way they come around every year. It would sound like a much friendlier way to die, getting killed off by flu Henrietta or flu Kevin. Back then she'd laughed. Now she checked her phone for a response from Domenica, 
though the time difference made it unlikely. Her sister had moved halfway around the world and married a man named Ahmad, who was actual oil royalty from the UAE, and with whom she had two little girls, Aliyah and Layla. Emma and Dom communicated mainly via text, or more frequently these days, highly staged photos annotated with emoji reactions. Looking up baby names, asked Jesse, I nominate Jessica. Ben shook his head, way too 80s. This may come as a shock, said Emma, but you guys actually don't get a vote on this. Stu grinned and leaned over to place a gentle palm on her belly. How are you feeling, he asked. What did the doctor say? Stu was tender, careful with her these days. The baby was precious cargo and Emma was the courier, the protective packaging. She was the styrofoam peanuts. No matter how close they were, the baby was between them now. The baby is fine, said Emma. At least the baby had been fine at last week's appointment. But this morning, while Stu assumed she was enduring the clinic's usual battery of tests, the premier tattoo artist in Texas had looked at her stomach like it was a dude who had cut in front of him in line. Absolutely no way, he'd said from behind the counter. And he shook his head so minutely, it was as though he didn't want to give her anything. Not a tattoo, not an apology, not an inch. It's just too risky for the baby, he said, crossing his arms. Each one sporked sported a forked tongue scaly dragon licking its way down the back of his hand. You've got the risk of preterm labor, risk of infection, and pregnant women's skin is different, more elastic, it holds more water, so there's a question of the quality of the tattoo, stretch marks, scarring. Emma suspected that tattoo artists like saying no because they were the last people on earth that anybody expected to have limits, especially tattoo artists with tattoos on their faces. Yet she had apparently found a line that this leather-wrapped forehead-pierced professional with two symmetrical cheek tattoos and a handlebar mustache was unwilling to cross. And then the baby had kicked up its feet into her side, as if in celebration of her disappointment. You're sure you don't think it's too risky? Stu asked now. Did the doctor say anything about flying at seven months? It'll be fine, she said, glancing down at her phone so we wouldn't see her face, unsure of what expression he would read there. If she was too afraid or not enough, Aramis seemed distant and far-fetched compared to the more pressing concerns of a feeble bladder and broken sleep. The truth was that Emma already felt as though she contracted an affliction that was wreaking havoc on her body and mind. But Aramis was alarming enough that there were travel advisories in place. The EU, Mexico, and the United States had gone so far as to ban their citizens from traveling to and from China. And in retaliation, China had called for certain debts to be repaid and the President of the United States of America had gone on television and tried very hard not to say that his country couldn't quite afford to buy enough antivirals for everyone who might need them. The media, however, had no compunctions about spelling it out. Sales of guns and generators were through the roof all over the country, even as the overcrowded American ICUs reported a survival rate above 60% for adults, a statistic that Emma did not find altogether comforting. They had no comparable data for children who by and large remained comatose, but so far there had been no cases reported in Canada or in Austin for that matter. Emma waited a beat before turning to Granite's too. Besides, the doctor said I needed more freedom in my life and more fun. He actually recommended a tattoo. Can you believe it? Just wait a few months until the baby's born, said Stu, wrapping his arms around her waist. He leaned in and smelled her hair. And who knows, you might change your mind by then. When have you ever known me to change my mind? 
He laughed. You're right, you're an abominably obstinate woman. Thank you. When Emma glanced up at the TVs again, the news was airing another story about New York City's so-called Aramis girl. Oh, I wanna see this, she said. Stu patted her hand as they listened to pundits speculate about how many people Aramis girl might have infected. She's an example of a broken public health authority, an analyst from a Washington think tank was saying. Emma stared at the now familiar photo of the smiling girl, frozen in time before her face and life got blown up out of all proportion. I feel so bad for her, she said, watching the rabid discussion of Aramis girl's possible movements. Emma tried to imagine the downsides of sudden fame without any of the perks. She must be scared stiff. If she's even still alive, said Stu. The program switched to a conversation about infection avoidance and an interview with one of the station's new commentators, the writer of a best-selling pandemic novel. He appeared on screen via a low-quality video feed. Oh my God, said Stu, sounding oddly vehement. This guy, can't they find an actual expert or is real science taboo now? Emma squinted at the TV. Why is he so grainy? Because he's Skyping in from home. He's saying we should all stay inside too. Easier said than done. A few months earlier, Emma had read the writer's novel in which all of the world's children caught a deadly virus and died. At the time, it had seemed preposterous. The baby began a fury of kicking. Maybe we ought to call someone, said Stu. He rested his hand on her belly again, his eyes watching the ticker at the bottom of the news program as it tracked the confirmed number of cases of Aramis worldwide. Let them know we want in on the special secret bunker for the rich and famous. <laughs> Don't worry about Aramis, said Emma. Believe me, I'm not going to. And this is the last short selection I'll read. This is from Keelan's section. Um, Keelan is, a, is an older professor character. Keelan, November, 2020. So is this it for the human race? Is this the end? The television announcer had lacquered blonde hair and a thick coating of makeup that made his face look like clay. Keelan shifted in his seat, aware of the heat of the studio lights and a bead of sweat traveling down the back of his neck. It's a very interesting question you pose, he said. He wondered how much of his usual Socratic method would be sacrificed in editing for a television audience. They told him the segment was part of an hour long feature on the crisis to be aired after the evening news and his interview would be intercut along with those of the other experts. The interviewer, Neil something, was still looking at him with expectation and a hint of impatience. It was all in the eyes. Once he'd asked the question, Neil probably knew it was safe to give these sorts of silent cues to encourage, intimidate, compel. It was part of the skill set. Keelan knew what the man wanted him to say. He wanted him to say, I'm afraid it very well could be. I'm afraid, Keelan began, and it was true, he realized. He was afraid of the virus, of whatever it was he might be about to say. He almost wanted to stop right there, but the interviewer's carefully groomed eyebrows shot up in expectation. I'm afraid, continued Keelan, it's too soon to tell. Now Neil's eyebrows were crestfallen, dejected. Keelan had let them down along with the television viewing public who needed to be told how to feel, what to think, what to do. Relenting, Keelan leaned forward on the desk, closer to camera two, revealing the corduroy elbow patches on his tweed jacket. He made his eyes as owlish as he knew how. 
but it might be, Neil. It just might be. Keelan had made amends to the eyebrows. They were furrowed and intense as Neil seized on the bone he'd thrown. When you say it's too soon to tell, is there anything we can do that might make a difference? Absolutely, said Keelan. He dropped his voice to a suspenseful pitch. How we conduct ourselves throughout this crisis might very well determine the future of the human race. On his doorstep, Keelan fitted his key in the lock, sparing a look over both shoulders as he did so. He wasn't sure when this had become a habit, probably around the time he'd started shopping at the bulk stores. But the street was deserted anyway. The street hockey kids, the toddlers on plastic tricycles, the old men raking leaves from their lawns, all of them gone in the wake of Aramis, gone inside anyway. Keelan locked the door behind him and dropped his briefcase beside the umbrella stand before frowning at the wooden receptacle with a picture of an umbrella and the word parapluie painted on the side. Peculiar artifacts of this sort, so limited and specific, seemed doomed to impeach their fading era of wealth and complacency. Umbrella stands, grapefruit spoons, nose hair clippers, these were not things that ought to belong to a world in crisis. In the kitchen, he slid a frozen pizza into the oven and set the timer on the stove. He didn't think he had gone too far in the interview. If anything, he'd been cautious. The fact was that a worst case scenario, well, perhaps not statistically more likely than any other, they'd have to ask an epidemiologist about that, felt historically, or at any rate, narratively inevitable. As a species, they were well overdue for reaping what they'd sown. And yes, maybe it was only because he was old that he believed things were coming to an end. His certainty might be nothing more than garden variety solipsism. If Annie were still alive, she would probably point out something along those lines. At any rate, the new chair would be pleased. He was happy whenever there was something that the university administration called an interface with the public. Publicity was good. Being the expert, even on the end of the world, had a certain cachet but there would be the usual blowback to contend with among his colleagues in the philosophy department. He'd been careful though, not to simplify or dumb things down. He'd streamlined perhaps, but that was inevitable in a soundbite. Keelan predicted a few of his younger colleagues would wonder, why him? Or more to the point, why not them? Perhaps if anyone said anything, he'd deflect with a joke about his beard being the real reason he'd become the face of philosophy on television. A long white beard was still a symbol of wisdom, if only archetypally. And television producers knew almost as well as scholars how the language of visual symbolism worked unconsciously on the viewer. In fact, it would be almost worth bringing one in for a guest lecture on the subject if classes were ever reinstated. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.